a Podcast One production. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Every week we choose a subject matter, something that is going on politically in the world, and Dr Keith breaks it down for us. You've been a commentator on international relations for many, many years, Keith. You've got three PhDs on the issue you've been... Uh, you know, you go around the world speaking at all these sorts of events, very prestigious events uh, that none of us would ever be invited to. I have worked with you for many years as well in radio and TV. My name's Kate. I help host this with you. But, yeah, you you do have a knack, Dr Keith, for breaking this down. A lot of these issues are quite complex as well by nature, so you make it very easy for us to understand. And we're going to talk today about political unrest. It has been everywhere for centuries, and we think as the world ages that it would stop at some point or that everyone would just reach a happy place. But it would seem, no, 2020 is turning (laughs) out to be the peak of unrest. Yep. So this is an article that was published four years ago. It has been republished um, in the newsletter, which people can get for free. It's a very good news service called Evonomics. So not economics, but Evonomics, which uh, talks about the evolution of economics. So um, I like the newsletters because they're not just the sort of the crazy mathematical stuff that you get um, in a lot of economic textbooks, but it actually brings in politics and social trends, etc. So that's the, the newsletter. And four years ago, they published for the first time, Why Unrest and Political Violence is Predicted to Peak in the 2020s. So this was a prediction made four years ago by Peter Turchin, who calls himself an evolutionary anthropologist, and he's at the University of Connecticut in the United States. And he's one of the creators of a new transdisciplinary discipline, which is called Cleodynamics. So Cleo is the muse of history, the goddess of history. And it's the application in clear dynamics to um, sciences and history. And so what he's done is to look at social indicators from the period from the 1970s onwards. And he's been able to make predictions about how he thinks society is going to evolve. And so four years ago, he said the 2020s, which we've now embarked upon, will be a very violent time. The problem, he says, with many political commentators is that they tend to focus on a particular slice of a problem rather than seeing how all the developments are interconnected. And so the value of his Clio dynamics style, which is a blending of history with other events like economics and anthropology, etc., is that you get a greater feel for the way that society is evolving. So one of the key issues that he looked at is what was called elite overproduction, which he says is driving the waves of political violence. So elite overproduction means that you've got a small number of people who are acquiring more and more wealth. So this is obviously what later on became the 1% movement, etc. But he was foreshadowing this four years ago. He said the problem in the United States is that you have increasing inequality with the people at the top getting richer and richer. Now, the people at the bottom are also getting richer if they're in the United States, but a much slower rate. And the story I like to tell is my selling encyclopedias when I lived in Boston 
50 years ago. I had to, when I went into a home, because in those days you sold them door to door, and uh, I always had to check they had a telephone because the telephone, the landline, as we would call it, is the cutoff point between being rich and poor 50 years ago. So if they didn't have a landline, they were too poor to pay for my encyclopedias. Now there are more, more, there are more telephones in, uh, in America than there are people. And so people at the very bottom have gotten slightly richer, but the people at the top have gotten a lot richer. And that's, been, that's what he calls this the elite overproduction. From 1983 to 2010, the number of American households worth at least $10 million grew to 350,000 from 66,000. So you've got a concentration of wealth at the top. The problem with that concentration of wealth at the top is that they don't necessarily spend money locally. Money is like muck. It's best when it's spread around. <laughs> what an <laughs> it's the old English expression. <laughs> Uh, so it refers to horse manure. You can move it around on your garden. And that's basically the problem in the United States is you've got the wealth being concentrated in these families and they're not necessarily spending the money locally. You know, a good example of this is what's called Engel's Law. Bill Gates and I consume about the same amount of food. So what is significant is that he's got a much higher level of income, but we're both eating the same amount of food. So as Bill Gates gets richer, he's not eating more food. He's keeping it in offshore tax havens, or in his case, actually, he's giving a lot of it away as well, mm. which is good. Mm. More than be said for some of those rich Americans. So the, the problem then is, is that you've got a lack of wealth at the bottom and it's not being spread around. And so Peter Turchin, through studying trends in history, is saying that when you get this elite overproduction, in other words, you're producing more and more of an elite population and therefore less and less wealth going down to people at the bottom. Then you run the risk of society becoming very fragmented and ultimately you run the risk of violence. So he was foreshadowing that four years ago. This is before Trump had, re- had, had entered the White House. He, the article was published around the time that he won the election but before he was sworn in. And this is one of the reasons that America is so heavily criticised, isn't it, because that gap is... Anywhere else in the world, the gap isn't so large. Yeah. Is it? Where, are, where are the other examples in the world where that gap between rich and poor is sizable, Keith? Well, I guess you'd point to North Korea where you've got, you know, the and China is also one like that. But I think a lot of uh, political classes realise that you're running a risk if you try to maintain a situation of um, a thin aristocracy and a lot of people who are suffering. It's interesting when you look at international surveys of the world's most livable countries, countries like Norway and Sweden always score very well. But there isn't that such a huge gap between the rich and the poor. So you could be travelling on a tram, for example, in, in Norway or Finland or Sweden, and you might well find yourself standing beside a multimillionaire who also uses the trams. <laughs> so it's a different situation than in those Scandinavian countries, and it generally increases social cohesion. The worry that Peter Church is identifying is that as society fragments, then fewer people really feel committed to the flourishing of that society, and they therefore become antisocial and ultimately will lead to issues of violence. 
This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. We're talking about political unrest today and interestingly that this year has been identified as one of the worst in history for political unrest, despite the fact that we've had so many wars and internal conflicts in countries around the world, Keith, for various sorts of issues. And it's interesting that this author has identified America as a particular case because of the disproportionate gap between rich and poor over there. Mm. And of course, that incites this sort of hate for the system and, and, and wanting to rebel against it. What are some of the other countries where we're seeing that kind of behaviour and, and those kind, that kind of unrest? Well, we've seen, well, we're not seeing it at the same level as you can in the United States. Clearly there are problems in France and you've got a rise of a populist movement in a number of Western European countries. Arguably what we saw with the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom. A lot of those people who voted... Uh, just simply voted because they d- just didn't like the government. That was David Cameron's government and the way that they'd had austerity for so many years since the 2008 financial crisis. The British government rescued the banks but not ordinary mortgage holders. Same thing, of course, in the United States. And so what Peter Turchin is particularly warning about is the way in which you've got economic stagnation. Now, he had no way of knowing the coronavirus was going to come along, but he was just simply saying that you've got stagnation and you've got a decline in living standards. It's very interesting, leaving aside the coronavirus, that President Trump in the last um, three and a half year or at least three years boasted about the growth in the American economy and the boom on Wall Street. But Wall Street is not necessarily indicative of Main Street. In other words, that ordinary Americans, the lived experience, to use the jargon, the lived experience of ordinary Americans would suggest that they are still struggling with student debt, paying off mortgages, etc. Oh, yeah, Wall Street's doing brilliantly. But part of the reason for Wall Street doing brilliantly is that companies are making so much money, but they're not spending it in research and development. They're just simply buying back their own stock, which then drives up the price. Why do they do that? Because CEOs' salaries, compensation as it's called, the compensation is partly based on the stock market price. So if you can do financial engineering and push up the price of your shares, then obviously you deserve a bonus. But it, but you're pushing it up through financial engineering by just simply buying shares back from shareholders. It's not because you're generating new wealth. It's not because of new products. Apple is the classic example of that. Apple is up to its knees in money. But it's not generating, you know, new breakthroughs that we associated with uh, in the days of the late jobs, etc. So this this is the problem. Then you've got this mismatch between what President Trump has talked about, the boom on Wall Street up until coronavirus, the boom on Wall Street, and the poverty that you see within ordinary everyday Americans. So you've got Peter Turch and his warning, first of all, about um, popular immiseration. In other words, the stagnation and decline of living standards. And secondly, what he calls declining fiscal health of the state. In other words, you've got falling state revenues and raising expenses, rising expenses. So, for example, as a society gets older, which is the case with the United States, then you have more money going into Medicare or Medicaid, whatever you want to call it, into aged care as people are living longer. So you've got fewer workers supporting more and more older people or people living on welfare of one sort or another. So Peter Churchin 
four years ago said, look, we're going to be heading into a period of instability. And he says it's a period for the 2020s, not just this year. It's going to haunt us for quite a while. What is also interesting, I think, is the way in which the political parties in the United States are now so divided. If you look at the Republican Party, President Trump's party, you find normally it's small but very united. So you've got people who are concerned about business, national security, they're the military and retired military, evangelical Christians, pro-lifers, and you've got the populists, particularly the populists that that, that Trump has uh, generated. And you contrast that with the Democrats, who are much larger, but they're not united. So there you've got blacks, gays, socialists, the under-30s, the greens, the unions, the pro-choice, and these groups feud with each other uh, because they don't agree with things. So obviously the Greens and the unions disagree with the big business influence on the Democrats coming out of the eastern elite, particularly in New York and Washington. So the Democrats, okay, a much larger population potentially of voters, but they're not united. And so it makes governing the country very difficult because there's no agreed narrative for the country now. Whereas Trump just has one person in mind he talks to, like one audience, and he, that's what he does. He he, that's hams, it. It's the same sort of messaging each time. Like he doesn't take those periphery groups into consideration. Yeah. And it's interesting when you look at uh, the surveys that we're seeing um, this month on uh, Biden and Trump. Biden is the presumptive Democrat presidential candidate. He uh, has a very low level of enthusiasm among Democrat voters. So you've got a lot of people who may well decide, look, I'm not going to bother to vote at all. And remember, it's very, it can be quite difficult to vote in the United States. You've got to queue. The recent Georgia election saw people queuing for an hour or two to vote. You know, we've got to bear in mind, in Australia, Australia is the international benchmark for voting systems. We are the best in the world. The United States is amongst the worst in the developed world. It's quite extraordinary, It is quite extraordinary, Yeah. And so you've got amongst Biden, okay, you've got a lot of potential Democrats, but I think a lot of them just won't bother to vote in November. Trump's supporters, none, uh, by contrast, are incredibly enthusiastic. You know, when he has these rallies, he's about to have his next one at um, Tulsa. Once he resumes his rallies, people queue for hours. They drive for hundreds of miles to get in. That's a level of enthusiasm you don't see in the Democrat Party. You did a bit for for Senator Sanders, but remember the Democrat establishment got rid of him. So they've got Biden, who's this year's Hillary Clinton. He's a little, just a bit beige. <laughs> exactly. You know, like he doesn't, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, no one can, how can you get enthusiastic about Biden? Yeah. Like a lovely little old man. Yeah. So it means, therefore, as Peter Turchin is warning, the 2020s are going to be very difficult, no matter who's in the White House, to try to unite the country. That's the basic problem. And so where to then? Well, Peter Turchin, as an academic, is simply predicting more and more violence because he can't see the political class getting their act together and coming up with a better situation. So it's a very gloomy assessment. Remember, he made that four years ago and he's so far turned out to be spot on. Well, watch this space then, Keith. Thank you. This has been Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. It's recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Producer is me, Kate Mack. Production assistance by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And for more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app. 